This is Hard Beautiful Journey, a safe space to be open and honest, to speak truth and harness the power of vulnerability and sharing. Unravel the strength of connecting through conversation, from mental health, trauma and addictions, to grief and spirituality. This is the podcast to use your voice, because when you use your voice, you ignite your soul. I am your host, Tiffany Vaughn. Join me as I help others talk about their hard, beautiful journey. I know they will inspire you as much as they inspire me. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Hard Beautiful Journey. I have an incredible interview for you today with a beautiful soul. Charlene Madden is here to share the struggles that she has experienced in her life from childhood sexual trauma, domestic abuse, mental illness, and suicide ideation. Her message is one of hope and that we need to shatter the walls of stigma that surround these topics so that people can begin to heal. As a warning, there is open discussion about suicide ideation. So if you are vulnerable at this time, please know that there is help out there. And I have listed many resources in the show notes of this episode. I always say, if doing this podcast can help one person in this world, it is worth it. And I know without a shadow of a doubt that this episode will save a life, hopefully many lives. Here is my interview with Charlene. Hey, Charlene, how are you doing today? I'm excellent. How are you? I'm doing really good. It is Friday, so... Fridays always make me very, very happy. (laughs) I don't know about you, but Fridays are really good for me. It is so, so nice to have you here on my podcast with me and my audience. And I really look forward to hearing your story and getting to know you because there are a lot of my guests that I actually go into these interviews knowing either part of their story or a whole bunch of their story. And for you, I don't know much of it except for some of the stuff we briefly talked about. So I'm really looking forward to hearing your story and how I know it's going to help a lot of my listeners. I just want you to know, first of all, how grateful I am that you are sharing your story because I know how strong you have to be to be vulnerable and share like you're going to do. So thank you. Charlene is the creator of Ignite Your Life Women's Workshop, BC Workshop. You're a speaker, an author, and a women's empowerment coach. And that is all amazing. If there's one thing I've learned in the last few years is that there's usually beautiful things that come out of hard times. And I know that for myself. And I believe that is the case for you. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. Everything that uh, I am doing now stems from maybe the the negativity and the trauma that I endured and now my passion and purpose to help other people not have to deal with that for as long as I had to. So, Right. So how about we start there? Let's start with where you're comfortable with starting. Mm-hmm. We'll go from there and just see where the, your story takes us. All right. I born and raised in Ontario. And um, I didn't grow up in a very happy, healthy household. Uh, My father was a severe alcoholic, uh, violent. And uh, when I was three and a half, my parents uh, separated. 
And my mother took my half brothers and uh, left the household. And my sister and I stayed with my dad. And of course, being such a severe alcoholic, he was not in any uh, shape to raise two little girls. I was, like I said, three and a half. My sister was seven and a half at the time. So he contacted my maternal grandparents, asked if they would take us in. And my grandmother didn't skip a beat, said, absolutely, we'll take them in. Uh, my grandmother to me was almost as close to a saint as you could get. She was very strong, independent. I thought she was very far ahead for her time. She uh, really encouraged us to get a good education, get a good career, not depend on anybody. And I probably learned that lesson just a little bit too well in my life. <laughs> my grandfather, on the other hand, was a pedophile. And um, my sister and I endured just over nine years of sexual abuse at my grandfather's hands. Um, so it was not an ideal childhood. And um, I kept quiet. You know, I've had people ask me why I didn't say anything. And I think as a child, coming from a home where it felt like no one wanted you and then being placed in this other home, I had this fear that if I said anything, I was going to get sent away. It was going to be another person that didn't love me, that didn't want me. So, you know, I just stayed quiet and endured it. Uh, my sister took the worst part of the abuse. And when she was 16, she had a nervous breakdown at school. Everything came out. Um, my grandfather was arrested. My grandparents divorced. So now I'm back into the broken home situation and dealt with a lot of struggles of growing up in a small town. Everybody knew. Um, so there was no anonymity there. Mm -hmm. um, and people questioned whether or not it was real. Because here we were, kids from a broken home. Maybe we were just making stuff up. Maybe we were just trying to cause trouble, get attention. So I'm at the age now where I'm going into high school because I was 12 and a half when everything came out. And I go into high school. And I remember when my grandfather was arrested. And this is the weeks after going and dealing with social services and sitting in a social worker's office. And bless her heart, I'm sure she meant the best. But I remember her just patting me on the back and saying, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. I didn't know what okay was. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that looked like. I just know I didn't feel okay. And at this point, my world wasn't okay. So I go into high school and I've got no counseling to deal with the abuse. There's no follow-up after this all came out. So I'm going in as a teenager, trying to process everything that's going on. And of course, at 15, 16. We don't have the tools to do that. Heck, I didn't have the tools till I was in my mid 40s. Um, so I was 15 when I started writing. I had started writing when I was 14. It was my way of purging um, the emotions that I was feeling. And of course, as I'm purging this, I, I'm doing a lot of writing of poetry. That's where my passion was. And of course, it's dark. And it's, you know, suicide based because at this point I've now kind of slipped into a depressive state. Um, I'm cutting myself. I'm just trying to numb however I can these emotions that I'm feeling. I started drinking heavily, uh, you know, as soon as I started high school. And of course, when you're writing really dark stuff like this, it grabs attention. And uh, I remember my English teacher pulling me aside and saying, I want you to go talk to the guidance counselor talk to the guidance counselor and they said ah we want you to talk to the school psychologist we'll bring them in to talk to you and 
this lovely lady comes in and does a, you know, whole afternoon assessment with me and questionnaires and talking. And at the end of it, she says, well, I want you to know we're diagnosing you as bipolar manic depressive. And I'm like, I have no idea what that means, mm-hmm. you know? And I remember her patting me on the back saying, but don't worry, everything's going to be okay. And I thought, why does everyone keep telling me that? Mm-hmm. And again, there was no treatment plan. And we're talking, you know, this is the mid eighties when all of this is going on. So it's, you know, a little different time, but she just was, if you need help, you need someone to talk to, come back and talk to us. Well, that's the last thing I want to do. I don't want to talk about anything. I just want to numb myself completely. So at this point, I just slap a smile on my face, which I had started to become really good at doing and just pretended that I was fine. Uh, I got through high school. All I could think of was moving away mm-hmm. because I had learned kind of a geographical coping mechanism that if I could just escape where I was, everything would be better. And I think that too many of us, you know, got that coping mechanism. So I graduated high school. I moved away with my high school sweetheart. We have three beautiful kids together. So fast forward 13 years, I'm trying to hold it together the best that I can, thinking that um, almost that every child I have is going to make me feel more whole. Mm -hmm. And I realized that nothing is going to really make me feel whole because that gaping hole, it just can't be filled. I don't have the tools to fill it. And as I'm coming to that realization, I'm slipping more and more back into that dark place where I'm recognizing that. I'm not going to make it out of this. And I started realizing I was fantasizing about taking my life. I was going to hang myself in my house and realizing that my kids were going to be the ones that would come home and find me after school. And that terrified me and I knew I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And I remember coming to my husband and our marriage at this point had pretty much disintegrated anyway and saying, I need to leave. I'm I'm not fit to be here. I don't feel safe around the kids. I'm afraid of what I'm going to do. So I moved out, moved in with um, my mother-in-law at the time. She was like, oh, come stay with me until you can get everything sorted out. But again, I didn't have any coping skills to do that. So I was separated from my husband for about a month. And I jumped into another relationship. And um, I think part of me wanted my husband to, to fight for the marriage for someone to want me bad mm-hmm. enough mm-hmm. and that didn't happen. So I just started going out. Like I was on search for someone to want me and I got in a relationship with a gentleman who was probably as dysfunctional as I was at the time. He was a heavy drinker. I just got out of a relationship was into narcotic drugs and was violent. And I think I slipped into the pattern of believing that this was the life that I deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, I deserve to be hit. I deserve to be treated terribly because I had no self-worth. And, you know, we stayed in this toxic uh, cycle for about two years. And I remember after one abusive episode, he left the house and I just thought I can't do it anymore. I went to the medicine cabinet, took out all the pills that were in there and took them all and sat down and started writing my goodbye letters to my kids. And of course, one of the hardest things you can possibly do, because how do you explain it to a child, you know, writing a letter to my son, who's 18 months old, how do I explain this, you know, mm-hmm. and feeling like here I am repeating the cycle of, you know, I'm leaving my kids just like my parents left me Yeah. only this way, there's no coming back. And 
I decided in that moment that no, I didn't want to die, thank God. And I uh, called a cab, went to the emergency room, and I was sitting at the emissions desk and telling them I'm here because I overdosed on pills and I collapsed. And I woke up and I had tubes down my throat. Mm-hmm. And um, there's my partner sitting next to me in the bed, crying, saying how sorry he was and you know everything was going to change. And in the process of him trying to track me down, he had contacted my mom and said, you know, I'm really worried about her. And so my mom had found out what had happened. And she says, I think you need a change of location. So here we've got generational coping mechanisms kicking in here. Mm-hmm. And she said, I want you to pack the kids up, move out west. And we'll help you get on your feet and get straightened out. And I thought, what a great idea that is. That's the best thing I can do. So I packed up, moved across the country, left my partner there. Uh, Six months later, he contacts me and says, I'm moving out there. I want to be with you. I'm sorry. We'll make a fresh start. I hadn't done any work on myself when I moved out. I just jumped into working and existing like I had always done and I was like, yeah, of course I want you to come out. And in my mind thinking, sure, everything's going to be different, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So he moved out and the dysfunction just continued. The abuse continued. Uh, the alcohol addiction on both our parts continued. And it was in 2014 that he came to me and said, um, I'm leaving you and I'm moving in with someone else. And I was like, oh, Hey, you know, like here I am again. Someone mm-hmm. doesn't want me. I'm not good enough. And I watched him drive away and move in with someone else. And I threw myself into pretending that I was strong and I was, you know, this is it. I'm making a change for my life. And meanwhile, I'm just keeping that mask up, not yeah. really feeling any better about myself. And I remember I was sitting at work drinking one night. It was a Thursday night and a police officer came in. And this was a police officer I dealt with a domestic issue with my partner, my ex-partner with. And he said, I need to talk to you outside. And I said, okay. So I went outside with him and he said, I just want you to let you know that we received a call. We found your ex's body. He committed suicide. Oh, my God. And, of course, I was devastated. Mm-hmm. Um I hurt for my children because he had basically been their dad for 13 and a half years Mm -hmm. while we were together. I knew this was going to crush them. And I think I had deep down, you know, kept that hope alive that, you know, someday we would work everything out. Mm -hmm. Um, And now that wasn't possible. So I did what I always did. I threw myself into work and just pretended that, you know, everything was okay. About two weeks after he passed, I'm sitting with a friend and I realize how angry I am. And I tell her this and I said, I'm so angry. And she said, it's okay. It's, it's one of the stages of grief. Of course you're angry. And I said, no, you don't understand. I'm not angry he died. I'm angry he did it first. Mm-hmm. I said, because now he's robbed me of my opportunity to do it because I've seen the pieces that are left behind. I see the lives that have been shattered by that decision. Mm-hmm. And now what do I do? Now I have to stay. I was so mm-hmm. angry. So I just tried to keep that front up. And again, I started, I came to a couple, you know, had a couple events happen um, and made a decision to start seeing a, a psychiatrist. And 
I had received a life insurance policy. And when that came in, everything started to shift in my mind because I thought I have something I can leave my kids now. I looked at buying a house. I purchased a house. And my, I remember my psychiatrist being so thrilled for me that I was buying this house because to her, this is fantastic. You're making plans for the future. That's what we want to see every person who deals with suicidal ideology doing. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, I'm making plans for the future, but it's plans to leave my kids something. Mm-hmm. And I received the keys to my house, September 26th, and I had planned the following month I was going to take my life. And I remember where I was working, there was a, a girl I worked with who was going to this women's workshop and she wanted me to come with her. I didn't really want to go because I'm not planning on working on myself at all. Mm-hmm. And she's like, please don't make me go alone. Well, I have always had a soft spot for other people and never want to see anybody else hurting. So I was like, of course, yes, I'll go with you. And my plan was I was going to this workshop and it was a Saturday and a Sunday. And then the following Monday, I was taking my life. Mm-hmm. So I went to that workshop on Saturday. I had my hunting rifle in the back seat of my vehicle. And I had planned that I was going to the same location that my ex-partner had gone to. And I was going to take my life in the same way he did. Mm-hmm. So I walked into this workshop and I felt sick to my stomach right away because I'm looking at all these women in here and they all seem to have it together. Mm-hmm. They're all chattering excitedly about, you know, making plans for the future and goals. And I'm thinking to myself, I just want to get through two days so that I can end it all. Mm-hmm. Here you guys are like, you know, making plans for the future. And, and I was just like, it's just one more place. I don't belong. I just in one more place. I don't fit in. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm listening to the first couple speakers. And the first speaker is talking about finances. And then someone comes up and they're talking about Uh, health and wellness and I'm thinking neither of these issues applies to me whatsoever at this point yeah and then a speaker gets on the stage by the name of Vanessa and she starts talking about self-love and she is bald she suffers from alopecia Mm -hmm. and she's talking about how hard she struggled to learn to love herself but the moment she loved herself how her life had changed Mm -hmm. and I'm sitting there listening to her and I can hear this little voice in the back of my head like, well, what about you? And I'm processing it. And I'm like, yeah, how different could my life be if I stopped relying on everybody else to validate me? If I stopped relying on love from other people, what if I could truly love myself? How different would my life be? Mm-hmm. And then the next speaker gets on and she starts talking about living with uh, mental illness and depression and how she had learned to embrace it as being part of her and accepting that part of her and still living a life where she was thriving and helping other people. And now I hear that little voice in the back of my head again, only this time it's a little bit louder. And it's like, Hey, what about you? And I thought, wow, you know, how different my life could be. If I could just learn to live with this mental illness, if I could just embrace it as being part of me and learn to love that part of me as well. Mm -hmm. And then the next speaker gets up and he starts talking about how he was suicidal. He had come from a broken marriage and he had been trying to find a perfect mix of pills and booze so that he could end his life while making it look like an accident Mm -hmm. because he was in the life insurance business. So he knew he needed to do that. And he talks about how he finally got visitation with his kids one night 
and that happened to be the night that he found that perfect mix and how he was laying there on his couch feeling himself slowly slip away for the last time and he heard that voice saying no not like this this isn't how it's supposed to be and he knew he had to change and he called 911 he saved his life and now he was going out and he was sharing his story in hopes of helping other people mm-hmm. now i'm sitting there and this time i'm hearing that voice and it's not quiet anymore it is <laughs> yelling like at you screaming at me yeah going what about you mm-hmm. and i'm sitting there thinking what if everything i've gone through has been for a greater purpose that's hard to for a lot of people to even think about but i'm like what if i could take everything that's happened and share it what if i could tell people i get it i know what it feels like to be there mm-hmm. but you don't have to stay there mm-hmm. what if i could share that story what if i could save a life because in that moment my life was saved and I remember after the event was over, going up to the, the host of the event and saying, hey, I just want you to know, I'm not going to go into detail, but this event has changed my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure event hosts hear that quite often, but I don't think she had any clue. And I said, I'd really like to come back and speak at your event next year. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, we'll talk. And she put a call out for speakers. And I went to her and, and I shared my story with her on how that event had impacted my life, how I left that weekend and went home and called a really good friend of mine and said, I need you to take all my guns. And I went to my boss and I said, I need you to take all the medication in my house. And then I went to my family and said, I need you to help me and support me. And I started going, okay, here we go. We're starting from scratch day one. Today, we just work on loving ourselves. Yeah. One day at a time. And I went back and I spoke at that event. And I remember saying, as I was on coming like on stage, I remember saying, my goal and my hope is that if I can save one life by sharing the experiences that I have gone through, that that's all I hope for. Because if I can save one life, everything I've gone through has been worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And I walked off that stage and I had a woman come up to me and she said, you know, you how you said you wanted to save a life. I want you to know today you did. And she turned and walked away. I know I, I get goosebumps still to the day when I tell that, because for me, it was like, okay, let's go save another one. It was mm-hmm. just that automatic reaction of, okay, well, who's next? Who are we going to go out and share to so that we can lift them up out of the dark? Wow. And part of that was that process The you know, when I tell people how important self-love is and how impactful it can be in your life from that first event where I decided to not end my life. Um, a gentleman that we happen to know by the name of Sean Tyler Foley. Yeah. Um, he was actually emceeing at that event and he did a little, um, a little section on fear. I realized how much fear was controlling my life. Yeah. And he said, fear of everything, right? Everything. 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 And write down six things that you're afraid of and let's roll the dice and let's start doing them. You know, so one of them was, all the writing I had done as a child and like a, in my early teens, my coping mechanism, it was like, I'd always wanted to publish that book just for myself, not for anybody else. And I was like, okay, we're going to do it. I published the book and it was terrifying because it was so raw. It was like ripping open my chest and this is who I am. And you worry that someone's not going to like who you are just because of words on a page. Mm-hmm. I didn't care. I didn't let that fear stop me. Um, I was so afraid of 
rejection still, even though I was loving myself. And I said, you know what? I'm okay with being alone for the rest of my life. If that's what is meant for me, I'm willing to accept that. I'm not settling anymore for good enough. I want the best. Yeah. And one of my fears was ask someone out on a date because I was like, you know, holy, if they say no, I'm going to melt, I'm sure. (laughs) And so I went and I asked someone out on a date. And we had our first date in December of 2017, and we got married the following August. What? That's awesome. And I just decided to put myself, you know, out there. And the the lady that hosted the workshop had decided that she no longer wanted to do it. It was a lot of work, and she was doing it all on her own. And and I was sitting there going, oh, it's too bad. I know the impact these workshops can have. Like, mm-hmm. too bad she's not doing it. All of a sudden, I heard that little voice in the back of my head that went, yeah, what about you? And I was like, yeah, what about me? Why don't I plan and host an event? It's like, I've been to a couple. I know, you know, what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. The fall, it was 2020 when I planned it and hosted my first uh, live workshop. And then I did one in 2021 virtually. But yeah, yeah. it was just, uh, it was that process of stepping out there and, and just saying, you know, what about you? Why don't you deserve it? If anybody else is deserving of it, so are you. So it's completely shifted my life. And now this is what I do. This is what I'm passionate about, just sharing, pouring my heart out. I am just, oh my gosh. (laughs) I'm like, I'm a mix of emotions right now. Like I'm sure you could tell as you were telling your story, I was trying to control like the bawling that was about to start happening because it's such a powerful story. And when I was on your Facebook page today, your Ignite Your Life page, you actually just posted something. This is the starting and ending point of true happiness. Self-love is where we set up our boundaries and expectations about the life we are going to create for ourselves. Learn to love yourself and watch how everything else falls into place. It's so important to find that self-love for yourself. That is really the starting point for everything, isn't it? Absolutely. Because everything falls in place. I mean, once you you develop that like true self-love and it's not selfish, we women, you know, we equate self-love to selfishness and it is the farthest thing from the truth. Why do we do that? I think it's just, it's generational. I mean, it's just passed down for women to think that, you know, it's in our DNA to care for other people, Yeah. you know, and not understanding that we can't do that fully unless You know, like we hear the adage all the time about you can't pour out of your own cup unless your own cup is full. Yeah. And, you know, because if you keep pouring out, then you're just, you know, your cup is empty and you have nothing left. So, Do you know how many kids left behind by parents committing suicide or drug overdoses would want their parent back and them being, quote, selfish, where they wanted just to love themselves? They would trade that in a heartbeat. Absolutely. To have that parent back. And so I wish that we could figure that out before we got to that point Mm -hmm. and where we actually had conversations maybe with our kids saying, this is where I'm at. Mm -hmm. And this is why I really need this time to myself, Mm -hmm. you know, finding ways of talking about it. Well, and that's why, like for me, talking about mental health struggles and, you know, childhood trauma and, you know, all of these things are so important because coming from both sides of the spectrum where I've lost someone to suicide and I've been that person who has struggled and not wanting to talk about it because there's this 
fear of shame and stigma attached to it mm-hmm. still. Like we've come so far. Mm-hmm. We still have so far to go. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm so passionate about men's mental health because they have it rough. I mean, they really like, do. <laughs> we women don't, you know, if we're struggling, we can go and talk to a friend and say, you know, we may not want to go into detail, but we can pour our emotions out. Mm-hmm. Men can't. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember sitting down with, you know, my ex-partner's best friend um, after he committed suicide and him saying, like, did you know? And I'm like, yeah, I knew. And I thank God to this day that we were never in the same place at the same time. Because when he was down, I was up, you know, mm-hmm. and then alternated. Mm-hmm. Thank God we were never in that same place at the same time. Because I hate to think what could happen, mm-hmm. you know, but he never talked to anyone. Mm-hmm. no one knew and you know you get when you live with it you get really great at camouflaging everything like oh yeah people, when I started telling my story so many people were like we never would have known like mm-hmm. you come across as so confident and so you know strong and I'm like yeah I know I practiced that mm-hmm. you know like I became really good at pretending that you mm-hmm. know? So, there's so many masks as my previous guest just said like there's so many people with so many masks in their lives. And one of them is, yeah, hiding the fact that you are in a really dark place. So nobody would ever know. And um, just being able to throw that mask away and show your vulnerability is, it's hard, but it's so worth it on the other side. So worth it. Absolutely. The one thing that you... um talked about a couple of times was your writing and that you wrote when you were a teenager. And I have some teenagers in my life where they're going through a hard time, very, very hard time. And the one is a writer and that's how he finds um, he can express himself and get his feelings out and I just keep encouraging him, even if it's dark, it's a way of releasing some stuff from your heart and from your brain and releasing some anxiety. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, the clients I work with now, I mean, that's one of the things, journaling. Mm-hmm. Like, and I mean, and I struggled when I started journaling because subconsciously I had attached depression to writing. Mm-hmm. So when I was trying to get in the habit of journaling, I would find myself slipping back to that. Yeah, but I don't feel depressed. Like, why are we writing? Like, it just become that those habits. Mm-hmm. And so it took me a while to get into. No, it's okay. Like, we don't have to be in a dark place to write. We can write good things. But I find for myself because I deal with that chatter. Because mental illness is not. You know, it's like alcoholism. It's always going to be there, mm-hmm. right? So it's not like we can cut that cancer out of our body. This is something that you learn to live with. I always say it's like that best friend that I have that I really don't like hanging out with, but I always seem to get stuck hanging out with them. Yep. So it's always there. You just learn how to interact with it. It's a Mm -hmm. healthier interaction. Mm -hmm. So being able to dump my thoughts out, just like you were saying, just brain dumping, just being able to sit, you know, five minutes a night, And most of the time I'll read it afterwards and I'll be like, I don't know what any of that meant. Right. But I just needed to, you know, and I just let it go. I just let it all out. And I immediately feel a release in my body. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I keep telling people like it's, 
like it's a stream of consciousness writing where literally, like you said, you don't even really know what you wrote, but whatever is coming out of the pen onto the paper, let it fly Mm -hmm. because it releases so much stuff Mm -hmm. from your entire body and from your soul that you just need to get rid of. Right. So I highly recommend journaling for anybody, whether they're going through hard times or not, that it's such a good way to let go of stuff that isn't serving you at that moment, just to let stuff come into you that will serve you. If that makes any sense. (laughs) Even, yeah. And and I mean, and gratitude journaling, right? Like we all know how huge that is, like, especially for me, because it is sometimes really easy. Um, February is a tough month for me, you know, like it just, I need my sunshine, right? Mm -hmm. So by the time February comes, I'm like, oh, I'm feeling, you know, I'm not feeling great. And um, I just practice my gratitude because it's so easy to shift back into that. What is crappy about life? It's Mm -hmm. so easy to do that. And we don't think about all the great things that we have. You know, so it's another practice I work on my clients with. It's like, hey, I want you to gratitude journal every morning. You know, write five things that you're grateful for every night, five more things that you're grateful for that happened during the day, Yeah. you know, and then you find yourself looking throughout the day for things to be, you know, especially if you're booking, ending it, you know, you, I got to find five things throughout my day that I got to be grateful for. So you start looking for it yep. and, the minute, and what you look for is what you will find, right? Yep. So you're going to start finding you have a lot to be grateful for in your life. So. Yeah. I've told this story before, but when I first started doing gratitude <laughs> It was hard. And I literally wrote down, I'm grateful for coffee five times because I was just like, I don't know how to do this. And then I, like you said, I would start to like, when I was driving home, I'd be like, Hey, I'm running out of time. I got to think of something that I'm grateful for because I'm going to be writing this soon. Right. And I remember this guy cut me off in traffic and I remember thinking, Oh, well, I could be grateful for that because I didn't get a speeding ticket. Because there was a cop right there, right? So, like, it was that shift where I was like, oh, like, I can actually look for things throughout the day and that will help. And then they just started coming way easier. And then I, I got to what I call micro gratitude, where, like, I actually got down to, I'm grateful for the person who made this coffee cup. Mm-hmm. Or I'm grateful for the farmers that are (laughs) making the coffee beans. Do you know what I mean? Like all the way down because there literally is something to be grateful for every single day. You know, like so many things you'll never run out and it changes your perspective on a lot of things when you actually see the gratitude that you can have for everything that you have in your life. Mm-hmm. Especially, it's I mean, we're, we're going through, these are crazy times that we're living through. So, I mean, like we really have even more reasons now to recognize the things that we're grateful for. You know, I'm grateful for my health, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, it's the little things that you take granted. Mm-hmm. I just had COVID. I'm so grateful for my health and that, that it finally left me after three long weeks. So what are you doing with all of this? Tell us about what you have going on. Well, I'm doing a lot of podcasting right now. February has been a crazy month 
for me. So my schedule has been pretty busy with that. I'm just focusing on trying to get out there and reach as many people as I can um, with hope. Mm-hmm. That's all this is, is it's just hope that, you know, tomorrow is going to be a better day. Um, I'm working on another book. So I'm hoping that that will, I think I need a holiday so I can just dedicate some time to writing. But <laughs> I get it. I'm writing a book too. I get it. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a I, lot. I find I do my best writing at sleep when I'm sleeping at night. I'm like, oh, I should be up writing this. This is a great idea. And then I go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do coaching, women's coaching, one-on-one and group programs. I host my workshop. And uh, so that keeps me keeps me busy. And I stay on, do my social media posts, just trying to reach out there, brighten people's days with a little bit of positivity. So Yeah, that's awesome. So where can people find you? Uh, Facebook, mm-hmm. um, Charlene Madden, speaker and author. Um, I am on Instagram, Charlene Ann Madden, TikTok, LinkedIn, all the, all the <laughs> usuals. Yeah. Uh, TikTok, I'm just kind of dangling my toes in the water there. I have not gone into that one yet. I'm, I want to eventually, but I've, I've just been a, a looker, not a doer. Well, I kind of chuckle because I, you know, I, I always, technology is usually not my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, I struggle with technology. I, I am working on that though. So, and I'm like, I'm, going to be 50 so i'm like you know tiktok is too old for tiktok and i'm like no no give it a try so yeah that's good that's awesome and what is your tiktok handle same thing charlene madden one okay perfect and you have a website too right i do yeah i have two websites i have charlene madden speaker.com uh it's more for my bookings for my speaking and then I have Ascension Wellness Studio, which is where I book my coaching programs through. And I do Reiki. I'm a Reiki practitioner because I got diagnosed about 15 years ago with fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. So I started doing Reiki as a pain relief so that I don't have to be on medication. Yeah. I don't have pills around. Yeah. And so, and then I've just gifted that out to other people as well. So just trying to heal body mind and soul as much as i can that's the key right body mind and soul all three of them i am so grateful that honestly that you shared this story with us your journey it really is a message of hope and i need everybody to hear this episode it's it's powerful your story is very powerful and i just want you to know how grateful i am that you shared it on my podcast today. Well, I'm truly thank grateful. You, thank you for doing the podcast because I, I always, you know, we come on and we speak and we share our stories, but without platforms to reach out and to be able to touch people, then our stories wouldn't be out there. So thank you for doing what you do. Oh, thank you. So I end every episode with something I'm grateful for. So I already said I'm grateful for you, but I'm also grateful that it is the long weekend here in Alberta and I am going to see my family and I'm really grateful that that is happening because I really miss them. What are you grateful for today? I would probably be the same. I took today off because I had a few podcasts to do. So I was grateful for a Friday off and for a long weekend and I'm just grateful that tomorrow I get to get up in the morning I get to go ice fishing with my husband because we don't get to spend a lot of time together and my son's going to come out so like you said getting to spend time with 
with family on family day and, and just being able to appreciate. I live in the beautiful Rocky Mountains, so just being able to be outside and and uh, enjoy it is it's a gift. So. It is a gift, absolutely. Thank you again for your time today and everybody go check out Charlene and, and hear more about her story. Thank you. What an incredible woman you are, Charlene. I truly mean that. The fact that you are taking your pain and helping others with it is the definition of a hard, beautiful journey. I am so grateful that your friend insisted on you going to that workshop and it keeping you here to do this important work. Thank you again for being vulnerable and sharing. You will save lives with your story of hope. If you know someone who could hear this message today, please share it with them. You never know the ripple effect that it could have in this world. Please check out my website at hardbeautifuljourney.com for more details on this episode, including where to find Charlene. Also, please check out my mistivvon.com website for the upcoming group coaching program I'm running starting at the end of March. Thank you again for taking time out of your day to listen to this episode. I am always so grateful. Until next time, please be kind and stay well. Bye-bye.